Hello and welcome. My name is Joe O'Mara. I am the Head of Aviation Finance with KPMG. And on behalf of KPMG and Airline Economics, I'm delighted to be joined by Betsy Schneider. Uh, Betsy will be well known, I'd say, to most of our watchers. She is a director with S&P. Um, Betsy, before we get into maybe the meat of the conversation, do you want to tell our watchers a little bit about your role in S&P and what you cover from an aviation perspective? Sure. Good to see you again, Joe. Uh, I am on the corporate side, so I'm involved with um, rating airline and aircraft lessor debt. Uh, I'm the primary analyst for the aircraft lessors uh, globally, and I also work closely with our structured finance people on their aircraft ABS transactions, although there hasn't been much of that this year. <laughs> we might so, touch on that shortly. <laughs> so I'm involved with um, all facets of aviation at S&P. And, and maybe to ask you first around the macro environment, and I should say we're recording this uh, in New York at the end of October, um, can you talk to us a little bit about how that macro environment has evolved over the course of this year, right? So we, we are very conscious of just the huge levels of uncertainty that are there, whether that's interest rate, oil prices, inflation, currency. Can you talk to us over just the challenges in assessing kind of risk and performance with that level of uncertainty that's out there? Um, yeah, I, I mean, especially for somebody, I've been doing this for many years, and I've been amazed at the level of airline travel that we've seen over the last, maybe not, I, I fully expected it through the summer because there was a lot of pent-up demand, a lot of people hadn't traveled for a long time, um, some of the, you know, the, with the strength of the dollar, people were traveling outside of the U.S. So I fully expected that through the end of the summer. But I've been very surprised at how strong it has been since then and the, what all the airlines, or at least the U.S. airlines, and I guess some of the European airlines are saying too about the strength the ongoing strength, especially in Europe, with, with um, you know, the, the Ukraine situation, higher energy prices, inflation, higher interest rates, but yet we're not really seeing the slowdown. And I'm wondering if there's been a lot of trends that have happened, that, that are happening, that people cite, when you have more um, people working remotely they have more flexibility to travel, to combine business and leisure. And, and I'm wondering if this is something, a trend of the future, a new way of thinking about airline travel going forward. I think we need to see more evidence of this, but if that's the case, then we have to start looking at it this way. And that points to potentially a very positive trend and, and interesting to think about. Um, when you look at the more challenging aspects that are out there at the moment, you touched on um, the, the, the sorry situation in Ukraine with the Russian invasion. Can you talk to us a little bit about the impact that has had um, since probably the end of Q1 this year? Um, and and is, is that impact, ignoring maybe the knock-on piece it's had on inflation, starting to dissipate on aviation finance, or is it still a cloud that hangs over it? Um, I think the biggest cloud over aviation finance these days is 
the higher interest rates and the higher cost of capital, which is probably a knock-on effect from the trends that you mentioned. Um, but I don't think that um, I don't think that that's, those trends are the drivers of what we're seeing now. I think it's more just the higher cost of capital and the big increase that happened very quickly. I mean, you've had higher, higher fuel costs, higher labor costs, and more to come on this, but the airlines have been able to pass these on in terms of higher fares, and the passengers don't, se don't seem to be balking at these higher fares, which is something else that I'm finding very unusual this time around that passengers, the demand is there. I'm sure part of it is the fact that they've, the airlines have had to reduce capacity because of some of the shortfalls we've talked about, um, the pilot shortage, the shortage at some of the airports that um, labor, there's not enough labor to handle all the passengers. And if you look at some of the airports in, in Europe where they've had to cut back on the flights there because there's just not enough labor to handle the flights. So I think that shortages are just, shortages are a positive for the space because otherwise the airlines, well, the other, the other thing driving this is the OEM capacity and the delays in the deliveries of aircraft. So between the, the delays, having fewer aircraft than they thought they would have, having the shortage, labor shortages, um, the airlines are being forced to cut their capacity. And so that's been a positive for the airline industry as well as the aircraft lessors because they have a shortage of aircraft themselves. They're also subject to these OEM delays. They haven't gotten as much air, many aircraft as they thought they would get delivered. And so that's, so that's been helping them in terms of demand as well as demand for some of the older aircraft and lease extensions and whatever. Yeah, and, and maybe moving with that around the leasing piece, we've seen, you know, the leasing threshold breach 50%. Mm -hmm. um, and w when you're assessing and looking at lessors, do you view that as something that is probably a long-term and sustainable trend? Or will we end up in a situation there, you know, if airline performance improves and balance sheets improve, that, that we'll see it kind of return back to that kind of mid-high 40s level, or do you think we've seen a sustainable step change? I think it's sustainable. I think that there's still a few more points that they can get. Uh, some of the airlines are certainly benefiting um, from, I mean, they could, they could benefit in the future, and then maybe there'd be less demand for leasing aircraft. But there's, when you look at the order books of the lessors, um, and, their ability to finance these, I think that some of the weaker airlines, they really have no other options where to go to, to get aircraft. And so I think that's gonna be a major driver of demand for leased aircraft is because of the uh, deliveries uh, or the order books that the lessors have, uh, that that's gonna help drive their market share. And I think that you know maybe it could go to the mid to high 50s over the next few years, nothing imminent. But I think there's still room for them to increase their market share. Yeah, and I think we've seen that if you look at the long-term trend 
it, it does go one way. It, it you know it, it ticks mm -hmm. upwards, and we've probably seen an acceleration that uptick. And I'm probably with you, right, um, on on that being a sustainable change. When you look at the leasing market and you're assessing it, um, you know, is there is there an importance on scale, right? So we now have probably Air Camp stands alone as a super size lessor. Mm -hmm. We've maybe six to eight players in the IG space, mm -hmm. and then you have the rest, right? Mm -hmm. And would you sense that when you look at the rest, right, that's a challenging market to be in? I agree with you. I think that um, the large investment grade lessors are the ones that are in a better position. I think they have access to capital. I mean, maybe they don't have access to the capital markets, but at some point they will go back to the capital markets. Uh, if you look at what happened when COVID started and AirCap went back to the capital markets, they had a successful transaction and it was very high cost, but it opened up the door for yeah. others. Now, uh, I think that you'll probably see some consolidation of some of the smaller participants. Um, and I think that they will have, although there are, what I'm, I've been hearing at the conferences, there is access, access to capital in terms of, from the banks. And the banks are ang anxious to get into the space again because with the capital markets being so strong in 20 and 21, they were kind of shut out. So they want to get back in again, but the banks only have so much capital and so I think that, I think you will see um, some consolidation among some of the smaller ones. Okay, can I ask you on that, just what constitutes small now, right? Because if you kind of look what's, what, what, what's <laughs> happened and you say that the consolidations that's happened over the course this year is imminently about to happen, it's in that 100 to 150 aircraft mm, kind of lessor, yeah. which we never used to call small, but maybe that's what small <laughs> is now. Just your thoughts well, around that. Yeah, I mean, you look at, you look at the, um, Carlisle bought um, Fly last year, AMCK. Um, you have um, SNBC in the process of buying Gushawk, which, you know, is still a, it's still a few hundred aircraft, but they're, it's gonna make them the second largest after aircraft. Uh, and so I, it, it, I agree with you. It used to be only a few, you know, maybe a hundred, a hundred aircraft was a good size, but I think you know probably bigger is better these days. And and you referenced the capital markets a couple of times, and as you say that that aircraft transaction in kind of mid twenty, kind of just reopened it, and, mm -hmm. and I guess we saw lessors fill their boots effectively, right, mm -hmm. over the course of twenty one. Yes, Obviously yes. <laughs> even even parking the aircraft GCAS raise, mm -hmm. huge levels of raising at exceptional rates, which has bought them a lot of headroom. But they're going to have to go back. When you, is your expectation is when we will see the IG rated lessors return? You know, in a, in, in a more challenged interest rate environment? Good question, that's what, <laughs> that's what we've all been wondering. I mean, AirCap has said publicly that they don't have to go back this year, not till next year. Um, Avalon on their earnings call yesterday said they have enough liquidity, uh, they don't have to go back for a while. Um, those are the only two have, that have said anything publicly. It's my thinking that it's gonna ha have to be Air cap or air lease that, that go first. Um, and so far, they neither of them had, have indicated when they plan to go, but 
they've, they've benefited from the fact that their capex is way below what anyone expected and they need the debt because of the fact that, um, you know, these delivery delays. Um, but at some point, these delays are going to ramp up. Capital spending is going to increase. So I think somebody's going to have to do something in 2023. Yeah, because yeah, it feels like we're just a, a bit of a clog in the market, right? Yeah, I, so we're yeah. at that situation where, as you say, slow on delays, which means the big guys aren't packaging portfolios, aren't putting them out, and, and then we just have a challenged trading environment. Mm -hmm. and, and despite the fact, as you say, um, that traditional aviation banks seem to have the capital and are mm -hmm. there, um, something's got to give. And yeah, it kind of went gives, right? definitely. And um, when you think about it, the, because the, the capital markets um, was so liquid in 20 and 21, that the average cost of capital for most of the large lessors is still pretty low. So even if they had to refinance something, it's not going to have a substantial impact on their overall cost of debt in their capital structure for a while. I mean, look at look at Aircap. They raised twenty three billion last year to finance GCAS. They really hit the market right. They were lucky they did that last year because if that had happened this year, would have been a whole other situation. Yeah, entirely right. And and the other uh, portion of the capital markets which you referenced earlier was ABS, mm -hmm. right? So. We saw that market rebound with nearly surprising speed in 21. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we knew at the start of this year there were a lot of deals in the pipe. Mm -hmm. um, and sentiment-driven market, we have Russia, and now we have rates. Mm -hmm. What's your take on where that market currently sits? We obviously had the Carlisle transaction earlier in the year, and now we're just at an impasse. Um, from what I understand, the transactions that were put on hold, they have warehouse facilities in place, and so they're kind of biding their time until they see what happens. But I think that um, um, the, um, Robert Korn made an interesting presentation this morning. I don't know if you saw it, but yeah. when he said, he said basically they're back at where they were in 2014. So I think everyone just got so spoiled by these low rates but they don't recall the days prior to that when pricing was much higher. So we've, we'll be in a round trip back to where we were eight years ago. And, and presumably to get there or to unclog that market, the challenge we have is lease rate factors, right? So we are seeing, yeah. and I guess the question mm -hmm. is, would you agree, we're seeing an uptick, but it's just not correlating yeah, with yeah. the acceleration in interest rates. Exactly. I think it's excel, I think on new deliveries, yeah. It's okay, but it's on the existing lease rates because because the lag is just not we have it, it happened so quickly. So this the question is how long is the lag going to be before they can reprice these? As leases as aircraft come off lease and they're renewed or extended, then they have that opportunity. But but if they signed leases, you know, within the last year or two, it's going to be a while. Yeah, and I guess that's a challenge if you mm. if you packed it a portfolio and you're ready to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and your, your warehouse will get you, you know, 20, 12 months, 24 months, but then something's yeah, got to give. Yeah. You referenced the aviation banks are back in the market. Just what are the other options, right? So you obviously have some of the non-traditional lending platforms that have uh, come over the last couple of years. Just your thoughts, if ABS isn't there, what will step into the breach? Well, I've heard some 
several comments today about um, the private credit markets. And I'm intrigued by that, about finding out more about that, about them stepping in. Um, and I guess some of them are owned by the private equities and they have a lot of cash available. And I don't know if private equity, at, they're just step, not private equity, the private credit markets are just gonna step in for now and they, they serve the purpose of maybe a warehouse facility uh, and then hope to take it out at some point in the future. But I think that's an interesting alternative that I don't, we haven't had that before. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, so think, I think seeing how that develops over mm. the next kind of six months or so will be yeah. interesting. Yes, right? yes. If you posit that ABS is probably Q2 next year, maybe, right, yeah. um, at best. Um, can I ask you then, from an asset class perspective, we talked about the uncertainty that's there for aviation, but kind of uncertainty is there for everyone, right? That interest rate environment affects mm -hmm. everyone. Yes. The inflation environment affects everyone. Aircraft as an asset class, we've seen an awful lot of sophistication in relation to it over the last decade or so. You know, the, the capital markets on the security piece speaks to that. How do you think aircraft as an asset class stacks up in this highly uncertain environment? Well, I think it's tainted by a few things. I think it's tainted by COVID and the lease restructurings that happened during COVID. I think it's tainted by the Russia situation, which, by the way, is a positive for the sector because you have over 400 aircraft that are stranded in Russia that are out of the global fleet. So in an environment where you have strong demand and you don't have the capacity, there's few 400, over 400 fewer aircraft there. Um, so I think that those- so as, long as, as long as you don't own the aircraft that are <laughs> over there, right? <laughs> well, you're the one who was uh, uh, who is responsible for all the impairment <laughs> charges. <laughs> um, but I think, and by the way, and by the way, we um, looked at these impairment charges. We did a review of everything, and and we still affirm the ratings despite the impairment charges because the other things we thought um, mitigated those impairment charges, and and um, we saw that demand, the strong demand and, and the um, less debt coming in because less need for capital spending and debt, that that offset it somewhat. So we, we actually affirmed, affirmed everything despite, despite those huge impairment yeah. charges that, that the lessors were first forced yeah. to take. And in theory, they're into <laughs> contingent upside now, right? So we'll see where that insurance market will go. Yeah. But that's a medium-term play, right? Yeah, to, to and we're not, even, we're not even factoring any insurance recoveries into our ratings because it's such an unknown yeah. no. when and how much. Agreed. No, agreed. And can I ask you then, just shifting gears a little bit on ESG, with a particular focus on the E, right? So mm -hmm. a lot more chat in the space over the last couple of years around mm -hmm. it, understandably so, as we exit a crisis of COVID into certain other crises it will continue to increase in importance. Mm -hmm. When you are assessing from a credit rating perspective, how much of an ESG lens are you applying to your assessments? Well, we have something that we um, instituted uh, last year called ESG credit indicators. They're not, they're, 
they actually represent something that we've already incorporated in our ratings anyway. So it's, there's nothing new here. It's just that we, we kind of came up with a scale from, um, and so now we assign uh, a scale of uh, one to five on each of our, um, on each of the E, S, and G. Uh, for the lessors, they're pretty much all twos, which is pretty much neutral. And is that just speaking to the technology that they own, typically? It's Yes, yes. Um, one of the other things that drives, well, the E is pretty much two for everybody. Um, the S, when for the airlines, the S, which is the social part of it, actually was incorporates health and safety. So when COVID hit and nobody was flying and their passenger levels were down and, um, and earnings and cash flow were hit, um, we pretty much went to an S4 for all of the airlines. Um, and then they've since, as business has improved, they've since come down to um, an S3. On the G, which is governance, one of the factors that, that's incorporated in that is who the owners are. And for um, airlines and aircraft lessors that are owned by private equity, uh, they would tend to be have a G3 rating. Um, and, but for the other airlines and lessors, they would be a G2. So that would, so for the aircraft lessor, for most of the aircraft lessors that we rate, they're all twos, which is neutral which is, you know, it's not a material factor in our rating. And then, then yeah, that was my question, right? So, so you rate them in a certain way, they come out with a score. How impactful is that yet? Or is it that impactful on how you're rating them? No, because a part of, um, especially the airlines or the lessors that have large order books, we view that as, as a positive already in our rating because we think that they're gonna benefit from strong demand because they have access to new technology aircraft and they will be, uh, so there'll be strong demand for these aircraft going forward, which is what we talked about before, yeah. how we, we think that the um, market uh, share of the lessors could go higher than the 50% it is now. So, so in doing the assessment that you do on lessors, presumably it's predominantly then, or it's an airline credit focus and an asset focus, when you're looking on the asset side, um, how, how, how much of a negative is it if you're not in narrow-body new tech? Um, it's not, I, I would have to, I'd have to go back and look at those that are, that ha tend to have older fleets, but I think that it's, um, yeah, so, so I have to go back and yeah, check. Yeah. Most, because I know that most of them are, um, E2s, but we might have one or two that are not E2s, but I, I don't recall offhand. Yeah. It, it might be some of the ones that, some of the regional lessors that, because some of the regionals are, have been under um, more pressure, but I, I'd have to go back and yeah. look. I don't recall offhand. And, and then the wider assessment um, from an airline credit perspective, your thoughts then when you're assessing a lessor and you're, you're, you're considering the rating to apply to them, um, how deep are you going into the lessee profile and the challenges that might come with, with various airlines in their fleet? 
Well, that's something, certainly something that we look at. Um, the customer concentration, geographic diversity, types of fleet, that's all part of the analysis on, that we look at on the business risk profile. And most of the lessors have, certainly the larger ones, have um, satisfactory business risk profiles. Um, and um, there are a few of the smaller ones that we assess as fair. Has Russia impacted your thoughts on that at all? So are you considering geopolitical risk in a slightly different way? So you hear chat around, oh Jesus, China next, or the, the, those challenges that might be there. No, um, what I can say is Russia didn't account for that big of a percentage of most aircraft lessors' portfolios. So that's not a negative. We've been looking at, there's a few things we've been looking at. Are there other parts of the world that maybe we should be focusing on if that's not such a good place to be in, that there might be problems going forward? Uh, one of the places we're looking at is China. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the lessors are reducing their exposure to China and maybe leaving it more to the Chinese lessors that we do rate some Chinese lessors, but we rate them under, um, you know, they're pretty much core to the bank like ICBC. And so it's, it's a different type of analysis yeah. than we do for the Western lessors or the standalone. Um, so we're looking, so that's what I'm seeing, that some of them are reducing their exposure to the Chinese airlines and, and maybe, you know, when they, certainly when they have the opportunity to place the aircraft outside of China. Um, so those, are prob I think the Latin American airlines came through this pretty well. Uh, I mean, despite the bankruptcies yep. that were there, but still, um, they came through this okay. So it's not, it's not really a problem like, like the Russia-Ukraine situation is. I think the Russia, and I, I, think, I think what you're going to find is maybe the, maybe the it, certain jurisdictions, they'll ask for bigger security deposits, maintenance reserves, letters of credit, things like that to cover any potential situations. Um, and I also think the insurance companies are probably going to be more stringent too in the policies yeah, that they if write. You, if you talk to an SR who's <laughs> trying to renew their insurance since April, I think it's you know both expensive and very challenging. Yes, yes. Um, just just in closing, Betsy, we, we talked about obviously an uncertain market with lots of challenges that that's in a state of flux at the moment. Looking out over the next kind of twelve months or so, can I ask you what are your hopes and what are your expectations for what's going to happen across aviation finance? For everything, airlines, lessors, Maybe focusing everything. on the lessor side. Um, my expectations are that the lessors will have to go back to the capital markets next year. They'll have, they'll, they have a lot of refinancing that's coming up. They had, this was a, a pretty light year for them because they did so much prior to this. So that's my expectation regarding the lessors. They're going to have to go back to the capital markets. Um, in some some form, my hope is that they uh, they're able to get some transactions done at not exorbitant pricing, and they're able to pass along these higher rates in in terms of leases.
So a, a positive spot maybe coming out of COVID has mm -hmm. been the resurgence of cargo, mm -hmm. which has always been kind of a spiky market. Some would be saying now there's been a real step change. Your thoughts on whether that's a real growth and opportunity section? Well, uh, they, I like the way you said spiky because we've always, we've always viewed it as more cyclical um, than passenger, um, the passenger side. Now, I have to say, I've been a skeptic. Every single aircraft, or I'm sorry, air cargo company we've ever rated up until just a few years ago has always gone bankrupt. There's always been some problem. Um, and the, uh, um, and because they've grown capacity too much. Now, I think that the cargo space has really benefited from the run-up in demand for goods, the shipping situation, the port situation, and so, and, and also the problems in China in shipping things out. But now, it seems to me there's gonna to be too much cargo capacity coming into this space. Everybody is converting aircraft, passenger aircraft into cargo aircraft. Belly capacity is coming back, as certainly as traffic to Asia Pacific opens up more, more wide body um, aircraft coming back into this space, so you have that. You have a lot of, a lot of you know, big aircraft coming back into this space, um, 747s, 777s, from, from the freight, delivered yeah. as freighters. Not converted, but delivered as freighters. So I personally think, I think that you know, it's benefited from e-commerce. I think e-commerce is still gonna continue to grow, but not at the levels we've seen. So I am a skeptic on what we are gonna see in air cargo going forward. I think there's gonna to be too much capacity coming into this market. So not a genuine step change. We're probably still into a cyclical piece. Still spiky, as you said. <laughs> Betsy, I'd like to thank you as always for your insights mm -hmm. and wish you and SMP uh, a very successful 2023. For all of us. <laughs> Thank you, Joe.